the Mac Observer's Mac Geek Gab number 436 for Sunday, February 10th, 2013. Greetings, folks, and welcome to the Mac Observer's Mac Geek Gab, the show. You send in your questions, you send in your tips, you send in cool stuff found. We answer your questions, we share all the rest, we talk about some cool stuff found that we found too together on this bright, clear, full of snow Sunday morning here in Durham, New Hampshire. I'm Dave Hamilton. <laughs> and uh, digging out uh, in Fairfield, Connecticut, John F. Braun. That's right. We're all here to learn something new. How you doing, Mr. Braun? Good, good. I got some good pictures if you check my Instagrams or my Flickr or whatever. Yeah, I posted yeah, a couple of Yeah, we got over uh, at least two feet, or at least um, on, that, on my uh, deck. And uh, I, I cannot get to the grill. This is this is probably the, the most disturbing. Uh, see, this is why you need children, because the plow guy came at about 12 <laughs> yesterday. And I was actually going to go out and snowblow before the, uh, the plow came, because it's just so much snow. I wanted to get some of it off the driveway. But anyway, he beat me to it. He came uh, just but really even before the snow ended. It didn't end here until probably about one. But um, but he came and then uh, and then we went out and three of us with shovels and one of us with a snowblower just to clean up the edges and the decks and all that stuff. And within an hour we were done and for finished, I should say. Done is what happens when you cook cake, when you bake cake. Finished we were. And uh, yeah, but uh, but now I could get to my grill. In fact, we toyed with the idea of grilling last night. We did not. Yeah. Yavel. All right. Let's let's dive right in here. Let's let's get things rolling and uh, and see what we can do. You know, now I'm I'm like you, Mister Braun. I don't have my question quite ready, but Joseph or Joe, I should say, writes: At what point should one consider updating a cable modem? My Comcast Xfinity cable modem is at least six or seven years old and is used for both Internet and phone. It is connected to an airport extreme. I don't seem to be having issues, but I'm not sure if I can get more speed or bandwidth. Well, this is a good question. I would say, especially being a fellow Comcast customer for the last seven years, about two years ago, I was... I, I guess I was on the phone or on uh, on chat support. Actually, with Comcast, I find that their chat support gets you in touch with some really great people, uh, and I've had excellent luck there. But I was on the phone with their, or uh, you know, online with their their support, and at one point the guy said, "Whoa, wait a minute, you've got a really old cable modem." And I said, "Yeah." I said, "But it still works." He said, "Yeah, but you're not getting full speed out of it." And he said, "You should just go down and swap it out." Now we rent our cable modem, and that's after years of. Having owned and dealt with all of that stuff, it we found it uh, simpler and better to rent. So, uh, it's probably time. I would say every two to three years, it it's worth swapping that thing out, especially if you're renting. But um, but even if if you're not, it's worth calling them up and saying, "Hey, here's the model number modem I have. Uh, am I going to be getting full speeds?" And and you know that's one of those things. Not every rep is going to have um, the right information in their heads to give you an appropriate answer. So you've got to sort of use your spidey sense to suss out 
whether or not the person that's giving you the answer is giving you one that it's not just lip service. And if you're not sure, guess what? Call up again, get somebody else, ask them the same question. If you pull three or four people and they all say the same thing, well, then you're in sync. So that's my, that's my, uh, that's my story, John. Any thoughts on this? It's a good story. I like yeah. that story. Good. Um, I, I have to add to the story. Mm-hmm. The story's not ended yet. So one thing you may want to bring up when talking about different types of modems is uh, the level of this standard called DOCSIS, Data Over Cable Service Interface Specification. And the two major flavors now, I'd say, are 2.0 and 3.0. Yes. Uh, the, the only thing I'll bring up here, so, so 2.0, and I did a bit, bit of digging, and this sounds accurate, is that, so in theory, a DOCSIS 1 or DOCSIS 2 modem has to support a single 42 megabit channel. Okay. Uh, what happens with DOCSIS 3 is that, uh, from what I saw, it must support, I think, three or four of those. In yeah, in each direction or something, right? I, I think yeah, that's right. So, so it's basically yeah. running parallel. So, so a Doxa, all of the things being equal, a Doxus three modem will run faster than a Doxus two modem. There, there are other variables, but uh, I guess the thing to bring up, and actually, I did find a uh, article from Comcast, yep, or now Xfinity Help, that says about Doxus three and it basically says the same thing. It says 3.0 is faster than 2.0 and some services that we offer. Uh, and I like how they put it here in the, in the article to take advantage of Doxus 3. You need a Doxus 3 modem. Doxus 2 modems will still work with our speed tiers, except for this and this. But you won't experience the blistering fast speeds now available. Right. So now that they put it that way and they also suggest that you may want to get 802.n versus G because that also is a uh, bottleneck. Oh, yeah. Wireless speed. Sure. Sure. Actually, let me uh, let me link to this. Uh, I'll pop that in. Cool chat room here. So I found uh, so so that is ju- just the guideline is that you, you they themselves say that you may be uh, limited uh, if you have a Doxus two modem. So I, I think mine is still a Doxus two. It's this cheap little scientific Atlanta thing. I think. Yeah, and you know it was interesting because I had uh, the service that I had was not. We did not require Doxis three. It didn't require, you know, more than 42 megabits in, in either direction. But um, but when I called up, they said, oh, no, no, that that Doxis two modem you have is not capable of the speeds that other Doxis two modems are. And so they actually, you know, they did something very interesting when I went in there. Um, I had previously had an all in one as as most people do that have phone and Internet in the same thing. I had a cable modem that had phone and internet in one, you know, you come, which is pretty standard. You have the the cable coming in from the street and then it splits it out uh, to either your phone or phone and your internet. And when I went in to swap it out, they said, look, we don't have any Doxis three modems. They wanted to give me a Doxis three modem, which was fine, you know, future proof. Mm -hmm. Uh, But they said, we don't in the store here. We don't have any, Doxis three modems that also support the phone. The only people that carry those are the trucks because they've got to be the ones to install them. So they said, and, and they said, but what we want to do is give you two modems. We want to give you a Doxis three for your internet. And then uh, this other one you'll use just for your phone. You won't use internet and it won't have, it won't be internet capable. And I, I was, at first I was resistant to this and the woman kind of kept nudging me like, no, you want this. And I said, no, I really want, you know, the all in one. And she said, no. OK, dumb, dumb. Here you go. Uh, you don't want the all in one because if something goes wrong 
with your all-in-one, the only person that can replace it are the people uh, that drive the trucks around. And you know how long it takes to get an appointment. And now it's not terribly long, but it's usually several days. She said, here we stock, you know, kind of the one or the other, uh, the Doxis 2 with the phone, and then also the Doxis 3. She said, so if you have a problem, you can just come in and swap out one of them, and you don't have a problem with both. And she said, this is what I've done at home for me. This is what you want to do. Um, you know, quit asking questions and just take it. So that's what I did. And that's what I've got. I've got actually two cable modems uh, sitting here. Well, one's here in the office and one's in the house, but you get my point. But yeah, Doxis 3 is bonded. Four channels or potentially eight, uh, but I've never seen it do eight here. But I suppose it's possible. So that's my story. That's our story. And John, you mentioned uh, you mentioned that you were posting a link into the chat room. So that's a perfect opportunity to welcome everyone that's in the chat room at MacGeekab.com slash stream. If you follow us on Twitter, Facebook, or even have the MacGeekab app, we will let you know when the stream is happening. And if you'd like, you can join us while we're recording the show. Of course, that doesn't stop you from enjoying the show on the feed like you normally do. But uh, good morning, everyone in the chat room or good afternoon or whatever time it is for you. John, we talked about cable modem speeds. Why don't we talk about USB speeds? Yes. And actually you can help me with this. Cause I, okay. uh, go from John, John writes, I am almost out of disk space on a one terabyte external drive that contains my iTunes library files. It runs on a FireWire 800 connection. I'm trying to save a few bucks, so I was wondering is if a USB 2.0 connection is adequate for streaming to my Apple TV. Um, now, I guess the part I don't get here, Dave. All right, so so there is a the, so the one part of the equation here is an external drive of some connectivity connected to a computer somewhere. Yep. Okay. And then the Apple TV. Now the Apple TV can stream from an iTunes library. Is is that the? Uh, I, I got to admit, I haven't done much with the Apple TV. Sure, but it'll see what's in the iTunes library, right? It'll yeah. You I mean you have to connect it. You have to tell it you can use this library, and you do sort of a pairing thing that you type. It's just like Bluetooth, where you type in a code that you see in both places. But but yes, it will stream from your iTunes library. All right, and the Apple TV could be connected either via Wi-Fi or uh, Ethernet connection, I assume. That's correct, yes. Okay, all right, so, so the pieces of the equation here, we have an Apple TV connected via some network technology, we're not sure which. Correct. Uh, a computer, uh, which we don't know, that has an iTunes library on it, and that's connected to the network somehow. Right. Uh, and then a external drive that has the library that is connected to the computer. Yep. All right. So I want to paint this because I think it gets a bit more complex here, but at least so, so what I think the question was here and I extrapolated as to the type of content you'd want to stream is that the uh, highest bandwidth content that uh, I think you can possibly stream for an Apple TV would be HD video uh, and that, poking around. Hmm? That would no, Yeah, I was going to agree with you that, that yeah. I can't imagine streaming something more beefy than that. So, yes. And from what I've seen, a, a compressed HD video, you know, 1080p or whatever, uh, probably takes about 10 megabits per second. So even USB 2, which in theory, although it says 480 megabits per second, uh, may go less than that, it certainly won't slow down to 10 megabits per second. So 
I would say you, you don't need, uh, for that purpose, a connection faster than, uh, or that should do. Firewire is nicer, um, but yeah, I guess USB 2 is more prevalent sure, uh, and less expensive. Yeah, so. and even if you wanted to stream to three Apple TVs simultaneously, uh, you still got enough, right? Yeah, I guess the only potential bottleneck, so, and also if you're on a wired network, if they're all on a wired network, then that's not a bottleneck. If any of them is connected wirelessly, that could be a, uh, that, and, and not a connection to an external hard drive would be a potential bottleneck. Yeah, I would agree with that. Yes. Is yes. it G? I, I guess G would, well, G is supposed to be 54, right? So that should be able to handle 10, but it may, it may stutter, right? It, yeah. Has that been your experience? I mean, yeah. I don't even know if you have any G. Uh, I, I don't think. Well, no, I have G set up, but yes, I do. That's right on the TiVo. Hmm. I'll have to try this. I've streamed eight. Oh, no, because I have my TiVo plugged in Ethernet nowadays. Yeah. Hmm. All right. So a G connection may, may be a bottleneck in this yep. whole equation here if you're setting up something like this. So, uh, you know, make sure everybody is, is on N and uh, and should be good to go. Yeah. Yeah, right. that's right. That's right. Um, you know, I want to I want to take this moment, John, to talk about our first sponsor, which is a new sponsor to the show. But uh, but we actually did talk to, talk about them in, in Mac Ecav four, three, uh, five, because they were part of our cool stuff found at Macworld Expo. And that is Transporter from uh, Connected Data. Connected Data. Uh, it was actually it formed in 2012. They were and they used Kickstarter um, to get some funding, certainly, but more to get some information and figure out what you wanted from them. Transporter is it's this cool little device. So uh, it, it actually looks cool. It's, it's worth checking out at filetransporter.com. But uh, but it's got Wi-Fi and Ethernet uh, ports on it. And what it is, is in the, and, and I'm, I'm going to start simple and then we're going to get there. Uh, it's. At, the, at its very core, it's a network attached storage device. So when you plug it into your network, you can see it. Uh, but it's so much more than that because it's like your own personal Dropbox. There's some software that comes with it. There's some software that lives on it that allows you to uh, to store files on it that you and others that you allow can access from anywhere. And you can either access them over the network or you can have them synced to your Mac like you do with Dropbox. The beauty is, well, there's a lot of beauty in this. Number one, the data is stored with you. It is not, the cloud is you with this. Whereas with Dropbox, the cloud is wherever Dropbox chooses to store your data. With Transporter, you are the cloud. And, and this device comes either naked uh, with no hard drive in it, and you put your own hard drive in, or you can get it with a one terabyte hard drive or a two terabyte hard drive. It's it's one ninety nine uh, with no hard drive, two ninety nine with a one terabyte, three ninety nine with a two terabyte. We do have a ten percent uh, discount code of MacGeekGab, so that'll save you some money right off the bat there. But uh, but the really cool part is I could set this up. You know, John, you and I use Dropbox to uh, pass files around for the show and all of that. There's no reason. Uh, that once our uh, test unit of this transporter arrives, we couldn't move to that. You install the software on your Mac. I install on mine. And now we own the cloud. It gets even cooler, though. 
If you happen to have one too, John, now the two uh, can be configured to stay in sync. So instead of you having to sync with my transporter, uh, our two transporters would sync with each other over the network. And then you would sync with your transporter, which allows all of your Macs to sync locally amongst your network, keeping bandwidth uh, costs down, bandwidth times down. It, it's actually really, really cool. Uh, and it's such a great, simple thing that they've, well, simple to use thing that they've built there. I'm sure building it wasn't simple, but, uh, but you know, it comes with a lot of benefits. I mean, uh, number one is you're not paying a monthly fee for, for Dropbox. And certainly if you were going to store a terabyte of data in the cloud with, uh, with Dropbox, that would cost you a pretty penny. Uh, it, it, there's no privacy concerns, right? You know, you, you've got your own data and that's that. You can back up stuff to this. It's far more configurable because it's also just network attached storage. So there's other stuff you can do with it because it's right there. You can access it from your iPad, from your iPhone. You could put your iPhoto library on here, right? You don't have to sync the stuff to your Macs. You can read directly to and from this drive. So you can put your iPhoto library there and have multiple people in the house access it if you like. Uh, it's perfect for backing up, right? If, uh, if I sync my, think about it this way, if I sync my documents to this, then I sync my documents to another transporter in the office. Now I've got offsite backups happening without really having to do a whole lot. So uh, very, very cool. And of course, you know, if I, if I have one of these and I'm just, even if I'm just using it for me and at this price, I certainly, you know, could just use it for me. I've got my own personal cloud. And when I'm out and about, say at Macworld last week with my laptop, I can sync back to my office here and uh, and pull my data and, and any files that I edit are just magically. They just work. So check it out. It's uh, filetransportercom slash Mac is the place to go. And then uh, Mac Geek is also your uh, your coupon code there. And we very much like to thank them for. Uh, for coming on board because this is uh, this is good stuff. I, I like I like cool technology. That's uh, it makes makes everything very very fun. So uh, filetransporter.com slash MacGeekab with the coupon code of MacGeekab. Check it out. Have fun with it. Love it. And I think they've got a thirty day money back guarantee if you uh, if you buy from them. 30-day money-back guarantee. If you're not happy with your transporter in any way, we will refund you. So there you go. No risk trial right there. Check it out. Have fun with it. Filetransporter.com slash MacGeekGab and MacGeekGab code for 10% off. Moving on, Mr. Braun. To Jesse. To Jesse. Go ahead. All right. I got a place to start here. Hey, John and Dave, this is Jesse from Chicago. I've got a problem with my iTunes. I've been buying some TV shows through iTunes. And when I attempt to watch them from my iMac, mid 2011, 2.5 gigahertz Intel Core i5, I get the following error. See iTunes box below. Oh, it's not there, but I have the message. <laughs> my email uh, uh, setup is... Uh, uh, that may be a story to tell in a few moments here. But anyways, the error message that he gets is this movie requires QuickTime, which is not supported by this version of iTunes. To which my response would be, huh? But <laughs> uh, here, <clears throat> I've set my iTunes library directory to be on the Drobo. The weird part is if I delete the video from iTunes and then re-edit manually, it will play no problem. 
The other weird part is that it will play on my Apple TV before I deleted and re-added the video. I'm guessing something is wrong with my plugins or with my permissions. Um, well, here's a place to start, though it, it may lead us to the solution. I don't know if it is the, the ultimate solution here to this problem, but it could be. Uh, oddly enough, Apple has a uh, tech support article. Uh, iTunes for Mac. Older media files may require iTunes to reopen in 32-bit mode. And here's what they say. With iTunes 4 or later, uh, now they say on OS 10 Lion, I, I know that, but but still, it's, uh, I think it may be relevant. You may get the following alert when attempting to play some older media files. And yeah, that, that was the exact message. So basically, the way, what they suggest is to try to open iTunes in 32-bit mode. Whoa. Now their explanation is um, that iTunes now opens in 64-bit mode, but what they say is, however, some older media files in your iTunes library may still require, rely on QuickTime. And this article claims QuickTime only runs in 32-bit mode. Hmm. Well, it, I'm not quite you know sure it, about that, because when I ran QuickTime and I looked in Activity Monitor, it is a 64-bit process, at least in, in uh, the, the version of the OS I was looking at. Now, again, I, I have an idea. Go because I think this is touching on what the problem could be, and I'd be curious to find out if opening iTunes, which if you do a get info on iTunes, you will see uh, along with some other programs a checkbox saying run in 32 bit mode. Yeah, so. right, right. No, I think I know what it is. I QuickTime because I ran into this when we first moved to uh, Snow Leopard and things started running in in 64 bit mode, and uh, I couldn't play audio comments. Uh, from Yojimbo at the time because uh, I was using that and it moved to 64 bit, but they just wouldn't, I couldn't capture them the way I used to be able to. And the reason was it relies on system services to, uh, to play its audio as it should. And 64 bit stuff was happening very, very differently and moving to 32 was fine. The net of what I'm trying to say here is that iTunes relies again on things beyond iTunes, including the QuickTime framework and the QuickTime framework is, I think there's two of them, right? Or, or, or it works either in 32-bit mode or 64-bit mode. But QuickTime then also relies on some external things called codecs, uh, which allow the, the codec stand is short for, if you've ever wondered, codec is short for compression de or compressor decompressor. It's the thing that takes your movie file in whatever format it's in and on the fly typically decompresses it and displays it on your screen and through your speakers. And if those, co if the, if your movie was compressed with a codec for which your Mac only has a 32 bit version, then you have to run QuickTime in 32 bit mode in order for it to read that 32 bit codec. And therefore in order to run QuickTime in 32 bit mode, you have to run iTunes in 32 bit mode to read QuickTime in 32 bit mode, to read this old codec that your old movie is compressed with. So I think that's brilliant. Issue. Well, between the two of us, I think we got it. So th this, the, the, this article certainly led us in the, in the right direction, totally. but you, uh, you expose the, uh, uh, the naked the, truth or, or the nasty underpinnings. There it is. Ah, <laughs> uh, fun stuff. I, you know, by Brian Monroe in the chat room has actually been dropping great hints uh, all morning. And he says, why not use VLC player? This is an excellent opportunity to talk about VLC player. Sure. Yeah. It's, it's something you want to have on your Mac. If you play videos of any type at all whatsoever, 
it um, it's a third party player. It is free. It's open source. I it's got to be open source. Yeah, it's open source. Mm-hmm. And uh, and it's got all kinds of different codecs built in. It can play movies and DVDs that your Mac otherwise may not be able to play uh, through normal means. So definitely, definitely worth having. Um, and then also, of course, I believe VLC is required uh, if you want to use handbrake to do stuff uh, as well. If you want to use handbrake to rip DVDs for your own personal use. So definitely get VLC. It's a, it's a good player. It's a shame they killed off the, the good iOS version of it, but, uh, but yeah, yeah, good stuff. Thank you, Brian. That's good stuff. Yeah, I use it for, uh, the, I think it's it's the best choice for playing uh, FLV or Flash video files. Oh, that's a good idea. Um, now, the other thing, Dave, and unfortunately, it seems that this is, um, this is kind of, well, it, it's not compatible with the latest OS, but Perian was something that I think we uh, recommended in the past as something that extends the codex, uh, you know, as you were describing, the QuickTime right. uh, may use uh, another codec uh, in order to play something back here. It's a... Uh, you know, more a framework than just the, you know, a single program. Yeah. But it's gone. Uh, but, Perian, it's but they say, well, they're saying we, we're, we're, well, they say it may or may not work on 10.8, which right. to me, I, I, and it, it, they, but I they aren't, as may not. <laughs> yeah. They aren't doing any future development on period, which, so right. I, so that's I a, yeah, it, but you're right. I mean, in a pinch, if it works for you, great, but certainly, you know, don't rely on it. Unfortunately, it used to be such a great thing. So yeah, well, I don't have to worry about that now because I got a machine I'm rebuilding. Oh, should I talk about that? Go. We'll talk about it later. All right. No, no. Right now is good. I don't know what I did. So you know, a lot of people get the MacWorld Cruft, which is the, uh, the you know whatever the crud virus or bacteria the or the crud, whatever virus or bacteria floats around uh, San Francisco with all those people in a uh, uh, relatively small space. Uh, I think my computer got sick because after I got back, Dave. Uh, when I tried to book my, which the machine worked great. I was, you know, writing articles and connecting to networks and doing all sorts of things. Work fine at the show. Sure. But then when I got it home, it started having problems booting and it would oh. just sit there with the spinning wheel. And I'm like, oh man. So I tried the standard stuff, uh, you know, say boot into safe mode, which rebuilds a lot of caches and stuff like that. It looked to be a cache issue. And if I did, if I booted in verbose mode, it, it would seem to get stuck at a step that's had something to do with the cache. So I'm like, ah. Eh. And you know what? For good measure, let me let me uh, fix user permissions. Um, now it's kind of tricky to do that. Uh, what did you, you use ha- to fix user permissions? Uh, the reset password. Oh, really? Okay. Utility. Yeah. Okay, that's Which the right way to do it. We, well, we actually have an article that describes how to do this. Yeah. Um, here's where I think the problem came in: in that uh, that utility. Uh, has a pull down menu, which uh, is the the user that you would like to do something for, and then right. the, on the bottom there's a button saying reset ACLs. When unfortunately, it defaulted not to my user, uh, not to me, my user account, but to another account. Okay. So I unintentionally fixed the ACLs for someone else, and I think I don't know what happened, but all of a sudden, then when I restarted my machine, all of a sudden it started complaining about security problems on startup items, and I'm like, what? And then oh. I looked and the permissions on everything in my home folder were, uh, had this new user assigned to it. And it was like, what? So I don't know if I had some underlying, I mean, the thing is this machine has migrated and migrated and migrated, <laughs> uh, for a long, long time. So I don't know if there was an underlying problem in the ACL repair just, just 
got confused or what? So I'm going to point this out and I am going to preface it, not just for you, but for all of our listeners with this is simply speculation and I'm going to throw it out there, but I don't want to cast any doubts on, on what I'm about to say and what I'm about to talk about yet, but I want to throw it out there. I realize your machine has been, you know, through a laundry list of system updates and, you know, and all of that. So, so, and I think you even migrated to that machine. I don't even think you started clean with that. Right. right? You, so, you know, it, the OS that's running on that machine at one point actually ran on a power PC machine. Right. So, uh-huh. <laughs> all, you know, it, it, this is okay. I'm in the same situation with the machine here in the studio. So, you know, I understand that path. However, you did install clean my Mac Two, the beta version of it on that Mac at uh, Macworld Expo, if I'm not uh, mistaken, is it possible that caused the problem? Again, I don't want to cast any bad light on that yet. I just want to throw it out there. Yep. So I don't know. So, so I tried a few things. So yeah, it, it, it wouldn't boot reliably. It would keep getting stuck. And I'm like, Oh, great. Yeah. So, uh, went to the recovery partition, said, uh, reinstall Mac OS 10, which you can do. It will not delete your apps and everything. It just basically reinstalls yeah. the, the OS. I'm like, yeah. maybe that'll fix it. Yeah. You know, it'll reset the permissions and stuff like that. Cause looking at the permissions in my home folder and other parts of the system, there was this additional user, uh, and it was, it was just confusing things. Um, so I tried that and actually then the machine got in a bootable state, but it still came up with these messages saying, uh, you know, security, uh, there's a security issue with something in startup items. So I'm, you know, not going to, and I have the specific message. Yeah. Which basically uh, Apple has actually has a support article about, and they basically say, well, if there's stuff there, you know, delete it <laughs> and then reinstall it. Um, so then I'm like, all right, re redoing the, the OS that, that helped a little bit. But then I'm like, you know, let, let me, let me try fresh. So I cloned that over uh, knowing that it still was damaged, but you know, the data was intact and, and data is fine. Uh, but then I did a fresh reinstall of uh, 10.8.2. I created a installed DVD uh, on my other machine, you know, and took the uh, the that uh, disk image file and burned it to a DVD. And then did a fresh install and tried to do an app import and a document import. Yep. That didn't fix the problem. Then I just did a document import that still had cruft in it. So I'm like, oh well, here we go. Start Whoa. from scratch. Well, not really scratch. I so, so the only part I'm, I'm the, the only part that I'm starting from scratch from is uh, reinstalling my apps. Uh, Still, all my data is fine. Sure, I understand. Right. But well, and apps- the thing was there was cruft and plugins and and stuff. So you know it's probably about time. I mean the thing is I'm I'm up and running because of choices I made. So for example, my email being largely IMAP, I was still able to do show prep and things like that. Right. And Dropbox um, and all of Dropbox that. Dropbox yep. and Google Drive and and also I have CrashPlan and SugarSync. Uh, though the backup, you know, like I said, you know, I had a uh, clone that, that all my documents on that are fine and I'm bringing those over manually and those are getting the right permissions. So the so for a particular type of uh, de- uh, permission damage, uh, which is what I experienced. Absolutely. I'm not, I'm not quite sure what caused it. I think, right. the, again, the reset ACL thing was related because it was a it's cer- know, it certainly was the straw that broke the camel's back. Because I don't, I mean, to me, it, it shouldn't be a bad thing to reset nope. the ACLs on a user other than your home user, but that seemed to do it. And and there could have been some. I, I think there was something lingering there because I've done that many times on, on different Macs and haven't, haven't ever had an issue. But, you know, as I said, most likely the straw that broke the camel's back. 
That's interesting. Yeah. I mean, the other nice thing is because I have a lot of stuff in iCloud. So for example, you know, my bookmarks in Safari, uh, another thing that got me up and running quickly is LastPass. I use that. So, you know, my passwords are for the most part stored somewhere else. So, um, you know, I'm not starting exactly from scratch. Uh, I, I guess that the, the key is, is that anything that's in the cloud, which would either be, you know, all the iCloud stuff, contacts and, you know, all that important information that all just got restored. Yeah. So, uh, you know, so it's a, it's a definitely a motivation to use a cloud service like iCloud or Dropbox or CrashPlan or SugarSync or all of those guys. I have enough redundancy where I'm not concerned that I've lost anything. Right. Right. Yeah. The the uh, I've been through this before by choice. And the only fr- it's actually easier to get up to speed than I had thought it would be. It It, it doesn't take very long where you may run into an issue is, you know, three weeks or three months down the road where you'd go to do something and you're like, Oh, I don't have that app. I, you know, and you'd certain you had it, but you don't. And then you got to just go through the process of reinstalling it. That's all. Yeah. And that's also a nice thing about the app store is that it was able to install any apps mm. uh, immediately. And the only thing is, you know, I thought things were going okay and that, you know, I did do a manual. Um, so all of the the sharing ser- or the cloud services, all of them had problems with, with the, the, the permission uh, damage that totally. I had and that they said, well, I, can't, I, can't, uh, I don't understand your home folder because something's weird with it. So I'm not, I'm, I can't install. Then what I did is I did a, a reset of the permissions on my home folder and, you know, propagated it saying, you know. Sure. Uh, Propagated to the, the um, rest of the, the directory structure. Yep. And that seemed that got me to the point where my cloud services ran and that I could install Google Drive and Dropbox um, and crash plan. And I'm like, oh, well, maybe I fixed it. But then the, the things were still unstable and that in mail. And this is what convinced me to just start from scratch. So I was in mail. I was I was starting to you know answer questions. Yep. Uh, I had my uh, Mac Geek app and, and other IMAP accounts uh, you know, seemed to be working fine. And then I quit mail, launched it again. And all of a sudden they were gone. Uh, I like, okay. Okay. Hey, that, that, uh, <laughs> unstable, unstable. At that point, I'm like, okay, this just disappeared. Uh, yeah. I didn't fix whatever the problem is. I didn't fix it. Time to start from scratch. I, there's, there's a, there's a point where you got to, got to throw in the towel. And that's totally. <laughs> no, totally. And that's the right point. When suddenly things, you think things are better and now they're worse. It's like, well, wait a minute. You know, now my understanding of this problem is, you know, out of sync with where things are. Oh, that's good. Hey, uh, you mentioned mail. So, uh, so, and problems with mail and Ray had a, uh, had a question for us this week about mail. Uh, I will read the question if you don't have it right up and then you take the answer. How's that sound, John? Fantastic. Ray writes, somehow my Mac mail became two panes. So I no no longer have the third preview pane. I'm using mountain lion mail. How do I fix it? Help John. So first you have to ask yourself, how do I get in this situation? So first let's review the the layout of the mail. Excuse me. Um, what you should have on the left side of your screen is a list of uh, your mailboxes. If you're in classic view, if you're in classic, classic view, thank view. You. Yep. So I think he's in classic view. So you have a list of uh, your mailboxes on the left side. And then on the upper right pane, you will have a list of the messages for the mailbox that you highlighted. And on the lower portion is, I guess, what's called the preview or the message um, area and that you click on a message and it shows you something there. The thing is you can make it so that that disappears 
And this could happen either intentionally or unintentionally. And I will I will interject here. It actually doesn't matter whether you're in classic mode or non oh, okay. non classic mode. The, the only difference is with non classic, your three panes go across the screen. In classic, you have one big uh, list on the side and then two on top of each other to the right of that. But either way, what you're talking about, the divider between your message list and the actual preview pane is uh, acts the same whether you're in classic or not classic mode. Go. Yes. And what you can do is if you hover your cursor over it, it will change, I think, into a bar with an arrow on it indicating, hey, you can move this. And you click on the mouse and you can pull it up or down. Well, here's here's the where I think actually maybe a UI goof on their part. So if you pull it all the way to the bottom and then let go, oh, well, the uh, preview pane just disappeared. And if you shut down mail and then you start it up again, uh, it still looks that way. The question is, how do you recover from this? Well, I think what happens is it wasn't done intentionally. It was done accidentally. And the other way you can make the bar go to the bottom is to double click on it. Right. Right. And if you double click on it, all of a sudden it'll shoot to the bottom and you're like, wait, what happened? <laughs> and the problem is also visually it, it doesn't stand out other than that the bar is there. It has a little dimple in the center of it. Right. So look for the little dimple. Otherwise, it's kind of invisible. It, it's certainly not obvious. And if you either double click on that or pull it up, hover over it and pull it up, then it will come back. Interesting. Interesting. But it's a. Uh, huh. Oops. What's happening here? I don't oh, know. Okay. I, I was I, uh, I sent John a little Skype message saying that during the, his little rap there, we heard a fan or something come on in the background. I just wanted to make oh, sure. I do have a hand uh, fan. The uh, humidifier is humidifying. Ah, there it is. All right. Well, the the, uh, the expander takes care of that when uh, when you're not talking. So now you know a sideline. I didn't notice this, Dave. Well, now I did because I'm starting running some apps fresh here. Is if you go in the bookmarks view um, in Safari, there's a similar thing. And when I started Safari, I was like, "What the heck is this? I didn't ask for this." Is that if you click on the little thing that looks like a little book on the left side of the screen, it'll show you collections, bookmarks, stuff like that. And then it's a similar pane layout in that it has the list of the item on the bottom. And then on the top is the stupid search field. Wait, where, like what's this? Safari. Oh, okay. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Got it. But there's this big thing that takes up a large part of the UI. And I'm like, I don't need this here. You know, it shows a big preview and, and the name of the item. And it's kind of like a scrolling visual thing. I'm not sure the, the name of this view here, but I'm like, how do I get rid of this? And there seems to be no way to get rid of it. But similar to the other thing, you can grab it and drag it uh, to the top of the screen to get it out of the way. Yep. Yep. It's kind of annoying. You can't get rid of it. What do you call that piece? I don't even know what it is. It's a, it's a search field, I think. Yeah, I'm not sure. Are, what you, you, in, call are it. you in Safari? I am. Yeah. And if you click on the, the icon in the upper left, show all bookmarks. Oh, yeah. Okay. And on the upper right, do you get this big, you know, scrolling monstrosity there? Yeah, the preview, like the, it's like the cover flow view of, of okay. all of your uh, bookmarks pages. So you can right. scroll through. But I don't and, like that there. And the only thing, I can't see a way to get rid of it, though you can pull the bar all the way up and make it. You can, well, you can pull the bar up, up as, so that you don't see cover flow anymore. You just see search. Yeah, I don't want to like see cover said. flow. Right, but so I, I don't want to see any of it. How can I yep. make the rest go? It, it doesn't go away. Search I guess. is search is handy though. You always <laughs> yeah. want search, John. <laughs> Listen to Apple. Okay. <laughs> All right, Paul has a 
uh, a question here that we are going to address. Paul writes, my time capsule has backs up three Macs in my house. One of those Macs has been sold and all the files migrated to the other two Macs. How can I quickly delete the time capsule backup of the sold Mac without disturbing the backups of the other two Macs? This seems like a fairly common use case for a time capsule over its lifespan. Oh, lifespan. I agree with you, Paul. That is a fairly common use case, and I've been through it a couple of times here. Um, the, the, there is an easy way to do this, but you asked for quickly, and unfortunately, quickly doesn't exist. Uh, but the easy way to do it is to, uh, to go to your uh, finder, and in the finder on the left sidebar, you'll see a shared section. And in the shared section, you should see your time capsule listed. Double click on that or click on that, I should say. And then log in if, if you must. And once you're logged in, you should see the uh, disk that's on your time capsule. So go ahead and double click that to open it up. And then there you should see a list of all of the sparse bundles uh, named after your computers, typically that uh, that are out there on the time capsule for all of your all of your backups. Simply take one of these and delete it. Uh, the, the, and this is where the quickly part falls. Uh, sparse bundles are actually combinations of lots and lots and lots. And in the case of time capsule backups, lots and lots and lots of files. And it will that your your Mac has to delete them one by one. Over the network. So it takes time. But it will happen. And uh, I did hear back from Paul after sending him this answer. And he's like, yeah, it seemed like nothing was happening. It took hours, but then it was gone. And that's exactly what you're going to run into. There's other ways to do this from the terminal. Doesn't speed anything up at all. So uh, unless you love hanging out in the terminal uh, and messing with that, there's no real reason to do it. But I've done it from the terminal before just to keep the finder from getting uh, clogged up. But but that is the... Uh, that is the path. There's no way to go to the time capsule itself and say, hey, go delete this file, you know, on your own. You have to manage the process from one of the client machines. And so there you go. But that that will do it. I promise. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the only thing is, if there's only one file, then you can just say erase from the time capsule. You're right. If there's only one. But uh, he, he said he had multiples, which I'm sure many of us do. So. Oh, yeah. Otherwise, the name of the file should be the machine, the name of the machine that backed it up, I believe. Right. That's right. That's right. Which you set in sharing, by the way. That's another thing I noticed. My machine started up and it didn't have a name. Uh, Isn't that sad? Interesting. Brian. Machine with no name. Brian Monroe says, if you have a Windows machine on your network, it tends to be quite a bit faster at deleting those files than uh, your Mac does, which doesn't surprise me. The finder... um, (sighs) The finder's not great. Uh, but anyway, uh, you know, on the on the subject of time capsule, I came home from Macworld, iWorld, and I think this started before I left, but I didn't have time to mess with it. The iMac in my office had started complaining, hey, your time capsule backup is corrupt. You need to uh, erase the backup and start from scratch. You got the cruft, too. <laughs> Yeah, but this was my iMac. It didn't even go with me. And it, it, like I said, I think it started before. Well, no, you I, brought it back with you and then transferred it to your iMac. Right. So it, there was it, some bad mojo at, at, uh, 
at the show. Yeah. But anyway, so destroyed I was like, our computers. I was like, oh, I hate this because it, it just takes a long time. And I got to go through the process of deleting the old one before I put the new one out because I don't have enough room on my time capsule to fit a new backup because time machine by definition takes up all the space that it possibly could. And I've got five machines backing up to a one terabyte time capsule. So uh, inevitably I run really, really low on space on that drive. So I just ignored it for a while. Like I said, I think it even started before we left. And finally the other day I'm like, all right, I, this error message is bothering me. I got to fix this. So I, I started trying, I figured, well, let me try and repair this. And uh, because that's a better path for me, not necessarily the most advisable path, but you know, I'm a geek. And so I looked on, I went and mounted the drive and I saw that my, um, my backup was locked. And so I did a get info and I unlocked it and then I tried to mount it and it wouldn't mount and the finder locked up and I tried to launch disk utility and it locked up anytime it was trying to mount it. And so I went round and round. I rebooted the Mac. I rebooted the time capsule. Nothing would let me mount it. And so I did with all uh, good time capsule uh, repair people do. And that is, I went and looked to Garth for the answer because Garth has the magic answer and we will share this link in the show notes and share it in uh in the chat room too right now garth has gone through and figured out all the steps to fixing a sparse bundle and it requires some time in the terminal uh you have to go through and change uh all of the the flags so that you can edit the files in there and then you have to attach the disk in a certain way and let the file system check run and uh, and then attach it in a different way. And then once you've repaired it, and typically what happens here, the other thing that you can do typically what happens is if you dig in, as we said before, sparse bundles are made up of lots and lots and lots of files. They're actually folders or packages or whatever. And if you look in there, there's a folder called bands and bands are how things are added to the sparse bundle. And, and that's why you can back up a sparse bundle in pieces or incrementally as opposed to just having to change the whole thing. And it's usually the last band that needs to be deleted because it's not finished. Uh, and there's, like I said, you can go through Garth's steps here. And, and those are honestly the ones I recommend. But once you're finished with whatever you're doing, I actually had to go in and edit a file inside the uh, top level of the sparse sparse bundle called com.apple.timemachine.machineid.plist. And I had to change the verification state of the backup so that when time machine looked at it, it didn't just immediately give up on it. And once I did that, you know, and finished the process, uh, it, it, I told it to back up. It went through a long verification because that's what time machine does. And now it backs up fine. So Garth is uh, Garth is the man. This is Garth Gillespie at Garth.org. But as I said, we'll put a link in the show notes because it is a handy thing. Um, as crazy as it is, Garth Gillespie. I'd be because uh, yeah, it looks like there's some serious uh, uh, command line wizardry going on here. So uh, well, what what you're doing is is you're but changing... obviously you d- that's not your only backup of this data. So I'm I'm not concerned. I know you better than that. Yeah, no, it and that's why I I didn't really care to deal with it right away because it, it's it's honestly it's probably the last backup I would use perhaps I would go to crash perhaps I would go to it before crash plan but um 
But, you know, otherwise I'd use my clone. I use, you know, Dropbox or, or sugar sink, or, you know, uh, as soon as I get this transporter, I would use that, you know, it, it's, that's just how I go. So, but anyway, it was fun. Mm-hmm. Hey, our second sponsor for this show, John is gazelle at gazelle.com. Gazelle, uh, is the place to go when you have old Apple hardware that you no longer want to use. And the excellent thing is if you've got the stack of like old iPods, like really old iPods or old iPhones, uh, or even if you have an iPad that you're currently working with, but maybe you, you know, want to trade it in and get an iPad mini because it's so much smaller and lighter and, and better in so many ways. You can turn all of those things into cash really, really quickly. What you do is you go to gazelle.com. They've got a great UI. They've even got a great mobile UI if you want to do it from your iPhone. Even if it's the iPhone you want to sell, your iPhone will never know, right? So you, uh, you go to Gazelle. You tell it uh, via the web interface. You tell them what you have, what condition it's in, what size it is, all of that kind of relevant stuff. If it was engraved, if it wasn't engraved. You go through and then they'll tell you, hey, if everything you say is true, go ahead, send it in and we'll pay you X amount for it. And they'll even send you a box for free. And the boxes are really cool. They um, they have these these little it it uses like cardboard and uh, it's cardboard with a piece of uh, cellophane is the wrong thing. But it's uh, it's like a strip of, of clear plastic. It's not tape. But uh, but it 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 keeps you slip your eye device in underneath this plastic. You kind of pick it up and it's like it's like tucking it into the under the covers and it holds it tight without styrofoam peanuts and all this other crazy stuff. And it really protects it while it's uh, while it's in shipment. And then once it gets there, they take a look at it. They confirm that it is what you say it was going to be. And uh, and I did this once and I said I was going to send two things in and I decided at the last minute, no, we're actually, we're going to repurpose one of those. So we're not sending it. And I didn't change my order or anything. I just sent the one thing in and they said, Hey, we got this and we got one thing, but it's in the condition you said it was. So we're going to pay you what we said we'd pay you for that thing. And obviously, you know, the other device you didn't send, we're not going to pay you for, which totally made sense to me. <laughs> and, uh, and, and that was that if they disagree with your assessment of its condition, they'll let you know. And then you have some choices as to what you want to do. And uh, and if you're willing to take your money, you can get your money. PayPal, you can have them send you a check. Uh, if you are willing to do uh, an Amazon gift card, I think they'll even give you a 5% bonus uh, so that you can spend the money at Amazon and even get a little more. So that's uh, that's gazelle.com. Check it out. It's just even if you don't have anything to sell right now, it's just fun to go play with the interface because you'll think about stuff that you might have to sell because it's really easy to see the dollar numbers that that stuff that's sitting there unused turns into. So check them out. Gazelle.com. It's uh, it's good stuff. You know, uh, so John, we were, uh, we had this storm coming in, you know, the snowstorm, the big, the big blizzard Nemo or whatever it was. Nemo. <laughs> yeah. And as you know, here in New Hampshire, we, uh, especially in this area of New Hampshire, we are prone to losing power. And the one thing, well, there's many things that are inconvenient about this, but, uh, but one thing that is most inconvenient, especially when we know we're all going to be sort of trapped at home, uh, which we knew we would with the, with the snow yesterday and 
is that uh, I lose easy access to my network storage drive, which sits over here in the office to my disk station. And that's where all of our, our movie archives are. So while the generator will power the TV and all the stuff in the house, we don't have access to our movie archives. And of course, if the power's out, typically the cable isn't too far behind that. So we aren't getting new content in over the TiVo so we can burn up what's on the TiVo, but then we want, you know, maybe to watch a movie or something. And I started thinking, well, you know, I, and I can, I can bring the NAS drive over and reconfigure everything, but that's a pain in the neck. And, uh, and when I was at CES, Seagate had shown me this thing called the wireless plus, which is a, uh, it basically looks like a, a small little, you know, USB portable hard drive. And that's what it is. And they'd send me one to check out and it's a terabyte in size. And, uh, and I thought, well, my music or my, sorry, my movies are about, you know, whatever, 800 gigs or something, certainly small enough to fit on, uh, on this drive. And I thought, well, this is the perfect answer because what this thing is, is yes, you can access it and just plug it in. You can use USB three if your computer supports it. Otherwise it'll, you know, back down to USB two. It's got a battery in it that'll last, they say up to 10 hours. I haven't fully tested that, but, uh, but it's also got a Wi-Fi circuit in it, uh, that can run off the battery and it's like a little portable NAS drive. And, uh, and you just take it and, uh, I put all my movies on it and then I can stream from it to my iPad, to my computer, uh, which I then can stream to Apple TV or plug in, you know, via HDMI to our TV with the computer. And uh, and you can stream up to I think they said up to three HD movies simultaneously over the Wi-Fi. You just sort of attach to it or you can tell it to attach to your Wi-Fi. There's a special iOS app for it. It's uh, it's actually a really cool thing. In fact, uh, someone I won't say who said that uh, that they often use it on an airplane when traveling with their family. Uh, they put their movies on this. They turn the Wi-Fi on. They leave it in the overhead bin in their carry on. And then everybody in the family can stream movies to their iOS devices without having what? to preload them. <laughs> hey, that's What's going to take the plane down. Of course it's not. That's right. Yeah. Oh, unless they're offering uh, pay service like GoGo, then it's fine. Then it, oh, then it's OK. That's right. And then, then everything's <laughs> that's totally, what I, I know. That's what I always figured, especially for, for, yeah, devices on the plane there. I even um, uh, know someone who was using their iPhone, uh, turning their iPhone 4 on while in a plane recently. Oh, my uh, God. To see if they could uh, uh, connect. Yes. Oh, and this one screenshot that I saw. Now, have you ever seen this? But um, in the area where it tells the, the name of the carrier or, or the type of service, I actually had a screenshot. That said the word enhanced, and I've never seen that before. Interesting. In the status bar on the iPhone. So interesting. I'll get back to this person that did that. It, it wasn't me. Uh, of course, it wasn't you, John. You no, wouldn't. You no. wouldn't do that. I would certainly never disregard <laughs> the instruction of the flight crew. <laughs> of the flight crew. That's a felony right there. Uh, sure is. Yeah. But um, but but this this thing's pretty cool. Uh, you know, like I said, it because it's battery powered. And and uh, and has its Wi-Fi circuit and all of that stuff. It's it's a pretty cool thing. It's two hundred bucks for the for the one terabyte version, and um, you know, pretty cool for for traveling around. It's um, very very interesting. And you know, again, it works with your with your iPad. They've got their own app, so you can offload stuff and view your photos and and play movies and and all of that good stuff. So 
it's it's a very interesting it's a very interesting thing. Seagate's heading down a very cool path with with some of their, you know, they've always been in the storage business. Now they're realizing. I mean, they, I think they realized a long time ago. Now they're coming out with devices that sort of take that storage and turn it into life use cases as opposed to just, Hey, here's some storage, have fun, you know, do whatever you want with it. It's like, well, why don't you, why don't you do this with it? So it's pretty cool. I, I was, uh, I was pretty stoked to have it here. Of course, with all that prep, we never lost power. And, uh, and that's even better if you ask me. So, um, let's get a little geeky here. Shall we, can we, can we get a little geeky, John? Uh, I've, uh... Maybe more than a little, because I think this uh, is this going to dive pretty deep. Okay, uh, so, uh, so, um, so I'm going to start with listener John, and then we'll go to listener Andy because they they both had some uh, similar but not the same things. He said uh, John started by saying, "I was slightly alarmed to see that over the last five days, our broadband connection has been getting massive amounts of data. We have a 200 gigabyte per month allowance, which is usually plenty." But in the last 30 hours, it's gone through 30 gigs after some investigation. He says, I discovered it's my Mac Pro. Uh, thankfully, my router lets me see which device is using the data. He didn't tell us what router he has. And that actually would be a handy thing, especially for the next question. Uh, he says, and then with little snitch, one of your favorite tools, John, I discovered that uh, the uh, an iCloud.com servers were getting constant uh, data used to and from says, I cannot find a turn off iCloud button, though I guess I could sign out. He then followed up and he says, uh, it turns out that these processes are related to iCloud's document storage. And uh, the AppleCare rep that he talked to said to uh, sign out of iCloud, then sign back in on your Mac and uncheck in system preferences, uncheck the documents and data box. And that stopped it for him. Uh and and documents and data is like iCloud's own little it's like their own little Dropbox thing. It syncs amongst all your devices and uh, and all of that. You can even put your own stuff in there, but I don't recommend it because Apple doesn't recommend it. And who knows what they're going to do to prune that data out without telling you. So I wouldn't use it as a as a Dropbox replacement. But uh, but it sort of works that way that whatever you put in that folder is then synced around. And apparently he had some stuff that was being stored there was stored there on the cloud and was coming back and forth. But he says, uh, little snitch network monitor was the best tool I could find for identifying what was causing this. However, it's a bit of a nightmare getting the constant alerts flagging up. I would highly recommend it as a diagnostic tool, but I couldn't live with it on an ongoing basis. I'll keep it running while I monitor to make sure the problem is really resolved. Then I'll remove it. And so, uh, you know, this got me to thinking I'm not a big fan of little snitch for exactly the reason that John mentioned because I just don't like all the big alert or all the alerts coming up and I don't want to spend the time to configure it. But it did remind me of another app, John, that we have talked about before called Rubbernet at rubbernetapp.com. And Rubbernet's, well, it's pretty cool because you run it on your Mac. So it's not going to look network wide, but you run it on your Mac and it tells you what apps are using bandwidth at that point in time. So you can check that out. The other thing that will tell you this now is the new, uh, uh, oh gosh, what's it called? iStat menus. Uh, if you go to your network usage in iStat menus in the menu bar, it will, uh, it will tell you, uh, you go to upload and download and you click on that and then it will show you 
what apps are using what bandwidth at that moment in time. And that can be handy too. It's showing you the top five, but that's probably enough to show you the major offenders. So Rubbernet or, uh, or iStat menus. I don't know why I can't remember iStat menus this morning, John. I'm, I'm flaking out. So that's, uh, that's that. Uh, and if you don't have anything else, then I will move on. Not to, for that one, but okay. for the next question. You do. Okay, good. Do. That's uh, tools. Okay, good. Because this is where I was hoping you might have something. So the, the next question comes from Andy. And, uh, and Andy says, I have a DSL, which for the most part, as I understand and have experienced, has no bandwidth cap. However, in the future, I may be forced to go with satellite Internet, which has an exceptionally low bandwidth cap before doing so. And I may have a choice in the matter. I would like to measure how much my four computers, one iPad and having cut the cord, one Apple TV are using. I have an Apple Airport time capsule and a TP-Link DSL modem. Will either of these provide a way to measure what is coming into the house for any particular time period? Is there an application paid or free available to do such? I have iStat menus, but I believe that only measures the computer it is on, which is correct. Okay, so I did some some digging. Uh, but, the, you know, the trick to understand is that if you want to and, and Andy, Andy Grok this uh, in his question, if you want to monitor bandwidth being used by your whole network, uh, the best way to do it is to monitor directly from your router. You certainly could monitor from each of your Macs and add it all up, but that's also going to include communication to and from each other intranetwork. And you don't care about that for these purposes. You just want to see what's going in, coming in and going out. Uh, I found something called peak hour app uh, at peakhourapp.com that may help with this. It uses a protocol called SNMP simple network monitoring protocol that allows essentially what it's built for is exactly this. It your and, and your router likely in fact, in Andy's case is router definitely supports it. The time capsule and other Apple routers support this SNMP. It allows you from your Mac to pull your router and get data from it about the data that it's transferring and, and what it's doing. And then your Mac can take that data and crunch it any way that it wants. And peak hour app um, may help that it's a, um, it, it's a real time bandwidth monitoring tool, but it may be able to give you some data. So, so that's, that's step number one. Uh, on the router I use, you know, I have this Buffalo router with the DDWRT firmware on it. That actually allows me to do exactly this, and it's just built in, and it just works. So it's really handy to be able to see what bandwidth I'm using. But if you don't have that firmware, then you need to keep keep digging. And I also found, and I believe this might even be better than this Peak Hour app, something at NetUseApp.com. And that, I believe, also using SNMP, allows you not just to see instant real time usage, but it will also track it over time. And I think that's what you're going to want to use. So, uh, so it, it's not net use app is not free. I think it was about eight bucks in the uh, Mac app store, but certainly, you know, well worth it if you need this, this type of data and it looks real pretty too. So, uh, so that's, that's our story and that's, we're sticking with it, or at least that's my story. And, uh, and the nice, the nice thing about net use is, um, 
you know, it's, it, it seems to be really easy to use. So, uh, so really, really geeky, uh, concept, but, uh, really easy to use. And they even show you how to, uh, configure your router to allow this, this type of, uh, data polling by turning on S N M P. But John, you said you might've found something else. So this is, this is where the magic I found not one, but two additional options. So one is something that's been out for a while, uh, is simple. And, and it also is, uh, an S N M P client. Yep. Okay. And the M I think is management, not monitoring. Ah, but, you may be right about that. But it, it monitors as well as manages. Sure. I think potentially you can manage, but, uh, so the first thing I found is something, that, uh, SNMP status. It's a very small program, open source. I got a link here. The guy actually points to an article that I wrote that goes into a little bit more detail about how to use it on your Mac. But basically you start this, uh, you give it the IP of your router, which could be a, uh, piece of equipment and then it'll list the interfaces that are on that device and here's the trick many devices have multiple interfaces so here you got to figure out which one and in the little write-up i did i think i identified which port was it wan zero or uh, i forget which one uh now will that anyways, if that you, store it over time? Because I found this, but I didn't. Yes. Okay. Well, if it's doing proper monitoring, what happens? And if you see the screenshot of the utility, it basically shows you two figures: bandwidth in and bandwidth out on this interface. Right, but will it tell so, me over the course of a week how much total I've consumed? Because that's what he's looking for. And well, I think, it gives you a it, well. Yes, it gives you a number, which okay. is octets or I guess bytes. Yep. So unless you reset the device, then oh, okay. that number will. So make a note of what it is. Sure. At one point in time and then look later and the difference is the amount of data that has gone through that interface in that direction. Yep. Yeah. Okay, cool. The only thing is you got to be, be smart about which port you monitor because you, you want to be sure and you can do this, but you got to know which port is the port that is connected to the Internet at large and not, you know, a, a subset or a single device. No, that's you that, be measuring that too as well. That's that's a very good point because yeah, it, it, this this protocol SNMP allows you. It, it's up to you to decide what you want to do with it, and so yeah, I think my router, I, I think it identifies like six ports, you know, and and I only want one of them. I don't want the LAN interface. I don't want the wireless interface. I don't want the second wireless interface. You know, mm-hmm. I want the WAN right. interface, and that's it. So, yeah. And when yeah, in this case, actually, internet. I think I found it was VLAN one was the interface on your Apple going to the outside uh, on. Yeah. At the point that I wrote this mm. the uh, on the time capsule, that was the uh, that may have changed. I mean, it may not have, but, you know, could have changed. Yeah, so one thing you may want to do ago. is pick the different interfaces and. Uh, you know, just see if the numbers are the, the, that are there and and the increase uh, makes sense relative to the amount of traffic that's going through to the Internet. Yep. And then there's a second utility. Let me get this one here. Go. Yes, from ScoobySoft. The good part is, yes, this is a geeky discussion, but the tools that we're talking about here are not overly difficult to, to use. And, and the thing is, well, yes, it's geeky. This is information that's relevant to a lot of us. I mean, you know, at some point, I believe most ISPs, if not all ISPs, will have some sort of bandwidth limit. You know, Comcast has been experimenting with it. They had a 250 gig a month limit. They removed it, at which point 
Uh, they removed it temporarily, at which point I started blasting a ton of data up to crash plan just to get, you know, all my backups up there. But um, but they're going to come back with it. And, and and rightly so. You know, there's some of us that use a lot more data than others. And and, you know, the the general populace shouldn't be paying for the data that, you know, people like me use. So but it, Comcast previously didn't have a way for home users to use more than 250 gigs without moving to like business accounts and this, that, and the other thing. So this is relevant data for a lot, if not all of us. So go, John. Did you find it? Yes. And the, uh, let's go here. So the other one, yeah, from Scooby soft is called surplus meter. And, uh, actually a TMO, a number of us have, uh, written about this in the past, but, uh, their deal is if you have a broadband internet service with a monthly download limit, you may find surplus meter comes in handy. It measures the download and upload traffic on your internet connection and keeps a record of your traffic volume. And it'll give you output statistics, daily allowance. Uh, I think it'll uh, set off an alarm or a warning if you get over a certain amount of use. Uh, Yes. So it presents statistics. So it's, it's doing uh, in a nicer. So, so it's one step above the other utility, which just measures. It doesn't, I think really, alert you that anything important or, or alert you that anything is happening. It just gives you the numbers. Whereas this can actually uh, uh, frame it a little, a little better, but I think it installs a piece both on. Uh, well, I think it installs a little, uh, I believe it installs a small agent or something on each client machine. Okay. That was my question. I, for some reason I thought um, surplus meter was, only monitoring individual Macs and not looking at your router. I, I, I just seem to remember that there was that sort of, which is not the greatest way to do this. Um, and it was trying to be smart about it, that it was only looking at internet, you know, stuff going out to the internet and not the intranet. But I, I seem to remember that it wasn't, it, it wasn't using SNMP, which is truly the only way to get accurate results of what's going in and out. I don't know. I, yeah, I mean, it is making measures. So something worth looking at. I'll, I'll have to uh, kick the tires on this again yeah. here. Because looking at a screenshot, it does. Yeah, it does have con- a, a connection type selection. Which yeah. Makes me think that it may be smart enough to know what device is talking to the Internet. Right. And measure at that level. Right. So a few more tools for your tool belt. Yavol. All right. Um, I got a quick one here. Now that we're on the network thing, sort of, uh, my buddy Dan was uh, up at, he's got this lake house or this camp that he goes to in the summer and he wanted to spend all summer there. And so he, uh, they have an internet connection, but he needed to get it to this cabin that he's in. And, and so he hunted and hunted to try and find a really long uh, range, omnidirectional Wi-Fi uh, adapter. And or or, uh, Wi-Fi antenna that, you know, was still legal in terms of the, uh, you know, the FCC and all that. And he did. He found it from a company called Airstone, A-Y-R-S-T-O-N-E. And uh, he's got this thing called the Air Mesh Hub, which um, I think he said he found it for about 250 bucks. But uh, but he said he easily gets, you, you know, like a half a mile or more out of this thing. And, and when he's on the lake, it goes, you know, a mile plus. So, uh, but, but he says it blasts through trees and everything and it's cool. It's, um, 
I'll, I'll put a link in the chat room and of course the show notes, but uh, it it's, it's, it uses power over ethernet to, uh, to power it. So all you have is one cable coming to this thing. And, uh, and then I'm, you know, in the house or, or whatever you plug ethernet into your router and then, and then power into the wall, but it, it combines it into just power over ethernet. So, uh, so this thing, you can mount it pretty much anywhere you like. I would definitely, uh, as he has done, I would put a, uh, surge protector, like, you know, run the ethernet portion through a surge protector because, you know, you're setting this thing outside. Um, but, um, but it's pretty cool stuff. And, and so I figured I would mention it. I know it's one of these sort of limited use case things, but man, when you need it, this is what you need. So, uh, so if you're looking to get ethernet, uh, sorry, if you're looking to get Wi-Fi outside, check this thing out. You might, you might be really impressed with, with what Airstone's doing. So he says, he says he's almost getting a two mile range out of the thing. Um, so cool stuff, you know, it's what we do. We find cool stuff and we mine for it is, uh, is what we do. Um, one other thing. Let's see. Uh, oh, you know, we ran an article on TMO yesterday about this. So it's, so it's actually really easy, but it was from, uh, Mac Geek Cab listener, Seth here. And Seth came up with, uh, not one, not two, but three tips. And I won't walk through the tips, uh, how to do them because we have them uh, posted on TMO. But what the tips allow you to do, there are three terminal commands. And as I say in the article, when you uh, paste these terminal commands, you will get zero feedback. So just remember that, but they do three different things. Number one, uh, the first tip causes your print dialog box to default to being expanded. You know, you can hit show details when you're, when you're in the print dialog there, John, well, you don't have to hit show details anymore if you don't want to. Yeah. If you always find yourself going big, just do this and set this and it'll always be big. The same is true with the second tip for save dialogues. When you're going to save something, it's a pain in the neck. If it's just showing you that little view and you're like, no, I want to be able to navigate my folder structure. I'm an old school kind of guy. That's what I want to do. You paste this tip in and boom, uh, you're good to go. And then number three with I, uh, with all the iWork stuff, pages, keynote, uh, numbers, for whatever reason now, I mean, we know the reason, it tries to default to saving everything in iCloud, and that's annoying. And we have a third terminal command from Seth that wipes that out too and saves it, you know, to your, by defaults to your documents folder. So you put all three of these in, and uh, when you go to save something, It'll be a big dialogue. You'll see where you are and you won't be in iCloud by default. So that's, uh, that's three tips from Seth that I just loved. So I wrote them up at TMO and, uh, and we share them here, or at least we share the link to them here because, uh, because that's how we rock it. Anything, uh, anything to share real quick, John, before we, hmm. before we take this and, and wrap it up. Mr. Braun? Nope. No, nothing? All right. Wanna... Not really. I got to rebuild my system. Oh, yeah, you do. I know. That's not yeah, good. It's been long overdue. I tempted fate. Well, yeah, it's not oh. a bad thing to do. And especially for, you know, Sunday afternoon, right? What else are you going to do? Uh, dig out more Yeah, stuff. well, there's that. That's right. Uh, do we have a quick, cool stuff found? I think we do. We have one from Greg. 
Greg is uh, like our, you know, cool stuff found hunter. He always finds good stuff. He found this very cool thing. Uh, it's called stick and find. Uh, and it is at stick and Of course, links will be in the show notes and all of that good stuff. Uh, as they call it, ultra small Bluetooth location stickers. You pair that for, for 70 bucks, you can get a three pack of these things. They are tiny. It looks like really looks like the size of a quarter and uh, you can stick them. They show them. You put them on your shoes. Obviously you could put them on your keys. You could put them on your cat. Uh, I don't recommend sticking it to the cat, maybe from the cat's, uh, you know, collar or your dog's collar or whatever. And uh, as long as it's within range, you can find this thing, uh, which is pretty darn cool. So, uh, so there you go. Yeah, it is. It's right about the size of a quarter. I think it's even got a speaker in it. Uh, Your phone alerts you. It looks like this thing might even have, I don't know. It looks cool. So go check that out too. That's uh, that's stick and find. Not like stick and puck. Stick and find. All right, John. I think it. Uh, I, th- I think that that song that the band played bears uh, bears repeating. Don't you? You left them outside that whole time. It's cold out there. <laughs> what did I do with my pen? My stylus, I should say. All right. Uh, you know, I have, um, I'm experimenting. I have a, a glass shield on my, uh, this is another cool stuff found. I'm going to ramble a little bit here, John. Uh, my stylus hasn't been working as well this morning as I'm used to, you know, I use a little stylus and I use uh, note taker HD to scratch notes on our agenda while we do the show. So I'm not burning paper every time. Uh, the stylus has been a little weird this morning because I'm using one of these glass shields from Cedio, uh, S-E-I-D-I-O, on my iPad. Uh, I will say that it's a pain in the neck to get this thing on there. And in fact, even at Macworld Expo, they weren't able to get it on without getting dust underneath it. So I'm not entirely uh, sold on the concept for the iPad. I've tried putting them on, on my iPad before, but... I have, and this is a glass shield that goes over your, your iPad's glasses as opposed to doing like one of those plastic films or, or whatever. So I would love to have it work well on my iPad, and I've even been living with it since Macworld, even though I have this one piece of dust that drives me crazy and keeps me up at night. But on my iPhone, I've had a glass shield on there from Clear Protector since CES, and uh, it's awesome. It's so nice to have. I... I I like to have something protecting my screen and I've always had film on it and I've always hated the way it makes the screen a little duller and a little dimmer. And I don't like the way it feels. I like the feel of the glass. Well, for 40 bucks, I think it is maybe even 30 from, from clear protector. I'll look it up while we're, while we're talking here. Uh, it's awesome. And, and the glass, it's so easy to put on your iPhone. I put it on uh, a jillion of our, our, our phones and not a jillion, but maybe, you know, some, and uh, at clearprotector.com, you just, uh, that's, that's where I got this one from. You clean the screen, obviously. You peel the thing off. You put the thing, you put the, the glass down. You tap it in the middle, and it goes, and, uh, and totally just does it. It just sticks. And the, the Clear Protector calls it their nitro glass. So, uh, so go check it out. It's... Um, it's cool. Totally worth it. Um, 
it's I'm so happy having glass, but knowing that I can replace it easily if uh, if I mess it up. So anyway, that's um, that's my story, John. But do you use the you don't use the glass stuff yet, right? Nope, I don't use any protector, just the case. So you don't have anything protecting your screen. Correct. Okay. Well, it's invincible. Yeah, it it you know the glass really is strong. I, I mean, I, it, you know, but I think uh, I have one chip in it where I don't know if I kept it in a bag or something. In a, but but no, it's a very very tiny little chip. I mean, other than that, uh, I will say one thing. I've used a lot of the the clear protector ones. The one I have on my iPhone, and it's like I said, it's been great since CES. So you know, lots of traveling and it, it no problem. I got a bunch of these, and I hate to badmouth any product, but uh, I feel like we need to warn you. Uh, I got a bunch of these glass uh, shields from Radio Shack because they've got a new one coming out, or it's out now, I guess. And every one that I've put on every phone I've tried, it looks great when I put it on, and 24 hours later, it starts to develop a little bubble in the middle. And I'm pretty sure I'm following all the instructions properly. Like I said, I've put these clear protector ones on. They're totally fine. Uh, I don't know what it is that, that Radio Shack's doing differently or what it is that I'm doing differently, but I've had bad luck with the Radio Shack ones. So, caveat emptor. There you go. But check out the clear protector one. Same price and works great. So, All right. That was like a bonus cool stuff found. So let's talk about this. John, uh, if... Uh, if they, our listeners, want to contact us to tell us about Cool Stuff Found or ask us, uh, ask us a question or really anything, you can email us at feedback at MacGeekGab.com. Feedback at MacGeekGab.com is where you want to send your email. That's right. Feedback at MacGeekGab.com. Uh, we can uh, take, of course, text there. We can take pictures. We can take video. Uh, you can take video and send it to us. You can take pictures and send it to us. You can even send audio to us. But if you want to call us with your audio, you can do that too. 206-666-GEEK, which, John, is 4335. That's right. Show notes are at MacGeekGab.com. Where else can they find us, John? Oh, they could be on Facebook, facebook.com slash MacGeekGab. Yeah. Uh, the Twitters. The podcast is MacGeekGab. I am John F. Braun. He is Dave Hamilton. The other he is Pilot Pete and Mac Observer for all sorts of great Mac news. Indeed. Uh, and I, uh, I think you can find us on Facebook, facebook.com slash MacGeekGab. In fact... If you are someone that wants to potentially or occasionally even join us for the uh, live stream at MacGeekGab.com slash stream, joining Facebook, following us on Facebook, liking us on Facebook will allow you to see when we post the Facebook event that gives you the time each week of this stream. It, it It's almost always Sunday, but uh, sometimes like today we do it in the morning and other times I think like next week, if I'm remembering the schedule, we'll be doing it at about five in the evening, five thirty in the evening, something like that. So, uh, but we will post it there, and that's the beauty is uh, is you can just join that and, and see. But we post it to Twitter, and we we push it out to the app as well. So the Mac Geek Cab app you can buy in the App Store, uh, obviously lets you join and listen to and the live stream and participate in the chat. Also lets you listen to the show. You can save one one uh, listener this week was asking. You know, what I'd love to do is when I'm listening, I want to save uh, little bookmarks so that later on I can go back and uh, and and hit these things when I'm not, you know, on the treadmill or what have you. 
Well, the app for uh, for our, our app, the Mac Geek Cab app, lets you do that. You can save little bookmarks and uh, and off you go. So and then you can go back and check them. So, all right, I believe that brings us to the end, John. We'd like to thank Michael Johnston from the We Have Communicators podcast and Get Appler. Com for converting this show to AAC and all of our shows to AAC. Cashfly.com for the bandwidth, getting it from us to you. Podcast Marketplace, Squarespace, of course. Connected Data, Gazelle, Smile at SmileSoftware.com, and Barebones at Barebones.com. All through the Backbeat Media Podcast Network. John, do you have any lasting advice that we might want to share here? Mm. Oh, of course. Don't get caught. Made up.